All right, so last time, we actually have, we have a, a good amount that I'd like to cover today. And by cover, I really mean put in front of you for your consideration. So I'm going to try to frame things, put a lot out there in terms of text, like sheer amount of text, with how I, how I understand the context and what's going on here. But we're not going to have a chance to read everything together. So that's good, because we have a whole other week to get ready for Purim. So if you were wondering like what you'd be doing for the next week, I'll give you stuff to do. All right. So last, last time, last time we ended on the last page of the handout that hopefully just went back around, the one that says God in the Book of Esther and the, and the Joseph story. Yeah, and the last page starts response to the godlessness of Esther. And of course, Esther is godless in a objective literary sense. Whether it's godless in a theological sense is what we talked about at some length last week. And we'll come back to it actually in a bit as well. I'm going to, so at the very end of, of the class last week, we talked about the last sources here, which were very quick excerpts from the Greek version of the book of Esther, which we'll talk more about in about three, four minutes, maybe five. But we will, I said we, I would introduce that more properly this week, and I, and I will in just a, a couple of minutes. Before we do that, before I turn back to that, I do want to draw attention to these other sources on the, on the sheet, the ones that are, my mistake, not translated, but two, two midrashim and a passage from the, from the Targum, from one of the, one of the actually multiple Targumim of Esther that we have. So Targum, of course, is the ancient Aramaic translation to any biblical book, on the Ketuvim, the last part of the Bible, there is no official Targum. So there is actually a lot more flexibility in what we find in the Targumim in these books. It gets complicated with the other books as well, but for our purposes, it doesn't matter so much. So for Esther, there are two complete Targumim, which are conveniently called the first Targum and the second Targum, yeah. and then which have differences among them. But then there are also passages, excerpts. This, this third passage, and I'll start with that one, this third passage, you see it says, Keta Targum la Esther mina Gniza. So a quick excerpt from a Targumic passage to Esther found in the Cairo Gniza. I unfortunately don't have time right now for a, a broad introduction to the Cairo Gniza, which, you know, the, the two-sentence version is that in the old synagogue in Fustat, in old Cairo, Ben Ezra synagogue, there were, well, there, there were tens of thousands of documents that were sitting there until they were quote-unquote discovered quote-unquote, because the people who were there knew that they were there. <laughs> just oh, just uh, the rest of the world didn't know that they were there. So they weren't like uncovered or anything. It was just that there's amazing stories. There's a great book, actually, called Sacred Trash. So there are all sorts of riches in that, in the Geniza. The text, you know, primarily medieval, although, although it went down to, to modern times. And there are all sorts of fascinating stories that could be told about the discovery, but more importantly, about what was actually found there. But this is a... An excerpt from a, a manuscript, a fragmentary manuscript of uh, Targum. So it's an Aramaic translation. As people who read it said, hey, this is an Aramaic version of Esther. We don't know when it's from. We don't know much about it. The only evidence we have, not in terms of the copy, but in terms of the translation, is from the language. And that's not all that helpful. It tells us that it's basically Byzantine Aramaic, but that gives us you know, a few centuries. Basically, it's from the land of Israel, somewhere between the 4th and the 8th century or so. But this is how they translate that first line of chapter 6. That, that first line of chapter 6 is the one that says in Hebrew, right? that night the sleep of the king fled. And in Greek, as we saw, that night the mighty one kept sleep from the king. In other words, an explicit reference to God. 
So in Aramaic, Baby Leila, Nadach Naton de Nagaraya, the Me'avad Sliva Lahaman. So that night, the carpenters who were supposed to be making the cross, the crucifix, for Haman, their sleep was disturbed. Why was their sleep disturbed? Because they had to stay up all night. They have a lot of work to do, right? Haman has, has said that he wants to impale Mordechai the next morning. So they've got to get it right. It's a big thing, right? 75 feet tall. It's 50 mm-hmm. cubits. They have a lot of work to do. So no sleep for the carpenters that night. Mm-hmm. That night, the blacksmiths didn't have any sleep. They had a lot of, of nails to make for the crucifix. That night, the king of kings could not sleep. Had it not been written, we wouldn't be able to say it. As it says in the verse in, in Psalms 44, Psalm 44, wake up, why are you sleeping, God? Now that actually is a shocking line. And um, so as part of your homework, I'll just tell you, like, actually look at Psalm 44. It's an incredibly shocking psalm where it does in fact say, God, wake up, why are you sleeping? You're not helping us, you're supposed to be helping us. But in the Targum here, what is the, the use that is made of that verse is to say, well, when did God wake up and not sleep? Which, of course, we wouldn't normally say, says the Targum, right? We wouldn't even dare say such a thing had it not been an explicit verse, but the verse says so. So when, when did this happen? This happened on this night. In other words, God's sleep was disturbed on this night. So God woke up as one who was sleeping. So on that night, God revealed himself. So this is actually a bit more radical than what the Greek does. Because what the Greek does, sorry, at the very end, what the Greek does is say that, yeah, yeah, the king's sleep was disturbed, but let's give agency to that dis- disturbance, right? Let's, let's not pretend that this is just a passive, like the king's sleep was disturbed by no one. Let's say, who disturbed the sleep? What the Targum does is something more radical. It says, when it says, that the king couldn't sleep. So it says very clearly, who's the king? The king of kings. Right? The king of kings couldn't sleep. I mean, God himself couldn't sleep that night as he's watching events unfold, and he had to decide what to do over the course of the night. And that, of course, is then the introduction to chapter 6, which is, in fact, the turning point of, of the Megillah. And this is made more explicit in the Midrash right above that. I mean, it's pretty explicit in the Targum, but I guess it's in Hebrew, so that's more explicit. It doesn't say that the sleep of Ahasuerus was disturbed. The sleep of the king was disturbed. Now I'm in the Midrash right above that, the one that says Midrash Panima Herod Bet, page 74. I'll tell you more about that reference in a second. Right? This is the sleep of God that was disturbed. The Midrash, of course, says, Really? Does God normally sleep? That his sleep needs to be disturbed? Well, sort of. When Israel sins, then he pretends he's sleeping. He makes himself as if he's sleeping. How do we know that? From that same verse in Psalm 44. But when Israel is being good, then, then God never sleeps. And that's what the verse, the more, much more famous verse in Psalm 121, that everyone likes to quote, <laughs> that, God, that the guardian of Israel uh, doesn't sleep. All right, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. The first passage right above that is in the same family of interpretations. But the key is, is that this, this line, this chapter 6, verse 1, on that night the sleep of the king was disturbed, that's a point at which many ancient readers said, 
we can't leave that as subtle as it sounds. Like, you know, is this just a coincidence? Like, how could this be just a coincidence? We should make explicit what is obviously implicit in the text. And what the readers, I think, very sincerely thought was that implicit in the text was that this is not a coincidence. This is obviously an act of divine providence. Here's where it starts to happen. Right? We've been waiting for God to do something, like the Jews are about to be killed. Well, but here's where everything, the wheels start to turn, right? The king can sleep. And then he reads in a book, and he reads coincidentally about Mordechai, and then Haman who wants to kill Mordechai shows up and says, I want to do something. I'm sorry, the king says, well, I want to do something. And Haman says, great, here's what you do. And then, wow, look at this amazing reversal. Just 13 verses in this chapter where, as we went into the chapter, we thought Mordechai was about to be killed the next morning. When we exit the chapter, Mordechai is being paraded around as the king's special friend or whatever, whatever we call him. And uh, at that point, and I, I think this is very important to, to say literarily, at that point, nothing has actually changed in terms of the real plot of the book. Because what's the real plot of the book? Like, what's the real suspense of the tension in the book at this point? Will the Jews actually be killed? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the genocide of the Jews, that's the real issue, right? I mean, yeah. whether Mordecai survives or not, I guess, you know, we're, we're invested in him. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is, like, all of the Jews are about to be destroyed. And that hasn't changed in chapter 6. I mean, nothing's, nothing's affected that. Esther hasn't been in this chapter. And then she is going to have the banquet in the next chapter. And then she will do something about that. And yet, despite that, the author has done something really remarkable in using the small case of Mordechai's fate to clue us into the big case of the Jews' fate. In other words, even though it's not true factually, what happens to Mordechai tomorrow and what happens to Haman tomorrow is irrelevant to the big question of genocide that's going to take place in 11 months. It has nothing to do with it. At this point, the decrees are out. And yet, literarily, emotionally, it's obvious that the author is actually using this as a way of saying, look, everything is now turned. Once we get to the end of chapter 6, even though if you ask me factually, like, what's about to happen in Jews, I'd have to say, like, decree is still out there, nothing's changed about that. The author has clearly built it up in a way that we're like, oh, but now we see actually what Zeresh says at the end of the chapter, which is, if he's a Jew and you've started to fall in front of him, you will never be able to beat him. So chapter 6 is clearly the fulcrum of the story, even though in a sort of technical plot sense, that's not really, not really true. So what all the ancient readers said was, okay, so if, that's, if this is the point, if this is the pivot, then we got to make that explicit. So, so let's make it clear. This is not just a coincidence. Here's where God shows up. And again, the Greek version, which I'll, I'll now say more about, is actually less radical than the Midrashim, which say that it's not just that God kept the king from sleeping, but that God himself was sleepless that night. Before turning to the Greek version more fully, I do want to say that there is an alternative to this way of reading, right? So this, this way of reading says, look, this co these coincidences are just building up in this chapter. It's like way too much to tolerate. Like how could we possibly tolerate a coincidence that the king happens to be sleepless this night, happens to call in people to read to him, which we don't know if he did all the time, but let's say he, tonight he did. They happen to open a book which happens to have a story about Mordechai in it, and then Haman and Mordechai and so on and so forth. Like that's just, that's just crazy. Like this is obviously not just coincidental. If you're claiming it's coincidence, coincidence, it's way beyond what's credible as a coincidence. So there's actually an alternative to understanding it as a coincidence, which goes as follows. And this is sort of hinted at in one of the medieval commentators, but not really developed by most because they're not interested in developing it. And that goes as follows. Look, what just happened in chapter five? Esther came in, right? She came to the throne room. Now she knew, because she told us, and everyone else knew, including the king, that by doing that, she had just risked her life. It, it, was, it was on penalty of death that she walked in unannounced. So 
the king looks at her and you know, extends his scepter and we all breathe a sigh of relief and we're like, okay, good. End of tension, like, let's see what happens now. But the king doesn't just say like, oh, end of tension, let's see what happens now. The king's like, why did you just do that? There must have been something really important to ask if she was willing to risk her life to come to the throne room unannounced and ask me at the end of the day to come to a banquet. Like, that doesn't seem like it's worth risking your life for. So he, his mind is whirling. He's like, OK, what's going on here? So a banquet with just me and Haman. What's happening? And then at the banquet, she said, come tomorrow. Right? So he's like, I offered her literally half the kingdom. What more could she possibly want? If she had wanted anything, I thought there was something momentous she was going to ask for. If she had wanted anything, she would have taken the opportunity. I said you could basically have anything. So what does she want? There must be something really important, but it can't be for her because I just offered her everything and she didn't take it. So his mind is whirling. He can't sleep. It's like, what does my queen want? And he says, look, people, who might she be interested in? Like, who could she be asking a favor for? Who does she know? Who is she related to? So they dig. And they're like, well, we don't know exactly what the relationship is, but at least when she first became queen, this guy Mordechai, who you might know, was at the gate all the time asking how she's doing. There's apparently some relationship there. Given more time, they probably could have dug up more, but let's just take it at that. So, fine. King says, fantastic. What do I know about this Mordechai guy? Dig through the archives. Find me anything about Mordechai. So they dig through the archives. They, I don't know, how, whatever. I mean, they, they had organized archives. We actually do know that, <laughs> but I won't, I won't worry about it right now. So they dig through the archives, and they pull out this record of something that happened a few years ago where Mordechai saved the king's life. He's like, fantastic. Okay, great. How did I reward him? You never rewarded him. Oh, okay. So then, then I, it's becoming clear, right? I owe this guy Mordechai something important. I mean, he literally saved my life a few years ago. I never did anything about that. So tomorrow, Esther's obviously going to ask for something momentous for Mordechai. Quick, let's, let's at least balance the ledger before she gets in. I need to do something important for him. Let me just reward him with something. Haman walks in, and everything, everything happens as we know it happens. In other words, that seems like a, really, a perfectly plausible way of reading it without invoking God's sleeplessness. I'll emphasize that's not the normal way of reading it. And no one, until recent times, has put it in quite those terms. But it seems eminently reasonable. I, and I say that only to say that even in this case, I'm personally not convinced that the author meant it to be inescapable that this is divine providence. Again, it may well be. But, but my reading, and I, I don't want to impose this on anyone else, but my, my reading is that the author is, is just asking. Like, I, I don't know. You know. It might be divine providence, but it's very hard for me to be sure because everything could be explained without invoking that. And I, say, and I want to emphasize that's true even for this. Even where everyone was like, this is such an obvious coincidence, it could only be God. Well, maybe, maybe, but you know, there are alternative ways of explaining it. All right, so that brings us more fully to the Greek translation. And the Greek translation we will unfortunately not be able to spend a huge amount of time on, but, but it's really just you know, fascinating and worth our attention. So conveniently, we know a little bit about this translation into Greek. No, just one. So we know a bit about this translation because it's actually signed, unlike the vast majority of ancient texts, and certainly biblical texts, in other words, literary texts, unlike letters or, and contracts and things of that sort. This one actually is signed. So, so the last thing, the fir- I'm sorry, the first thing you have on the sheet, the colophon, is actually the last part of the text. And the last thing, the last few lines of the text say, in the fourth year of the reign of Ptolemy, Apparently, it's Ptolemy the 12th and Cleopatra. 
There are unfortunately three Ptolemies who married Cleopatra. But in the fourth reign of the reign of Ptolemy and Cleopatra, Dositheus, who said he was a priest and a Levite, and his son Ptolemy, brought the foregoing letter of Purim, which they said was authentic and had been translated by Lysimachus, son of Ptolemy, a member of the community of Jerusalem. So Ptolemy and Cleopatra probably give you a good sense, but the Greek Bible also might give you a good sense. Where is this coming to? Where is this happening? Like, who, which Jews are reading the Greek version of the Bible in the first century BCE? Yeah, in, in Egypt, right, in Alexandria, basically, where we're told in the next century, we're told that, that there were a million Jews. I don't know, I wouldn't take the number too seriously, but it's a huge Jewish population and a very prominent Jewish population. In rabbinic literature, there's still stories about the great synagogue of Alexandria where no one could hear anyone. You have to translators, translators, translators. So there's a, so this is a, this is a, an important Jewish population, and they're essentially illiterate in Hebrew. They're not illiterate generally. They're actually, at least you know, the intellectuals among them, are, are highly literate, but not so much in Hebrew. And that is the consensus about where the Greek translation of the whole Bible originates, or at least almost the whole Bible, is from Alexandria, and for the purpose of the Jews of Alexandria, who were actually religious Jews, but couldn't read Hebrew. So this is brought to Alexandria, as you see, by these two people, Dositheus and Ptolemy, were father and son. And it was translated, not in Alexandria, but in Jerusalem, by Lysimachus, son of a different Ptolemy. So there are unfortunately three Ptolemies in this little <laughs> sentence. But that's what happens when the king's name is Ptolemy, right? And he's Ptolemy the 12th. <laughs> so people have had lots of opportunities to, to name their kids Ptolemy. All right. Now, what's going on in Jerusalem in 77 BCE? It's for broad context. 77 BC. BC. So it's 100, almost 150 years before the temple is destroyed. So, so they obviously have no idea. Second temple. Second temple. Civil war. There are periods of civil war right around here. Among who is the, like who's fighting here? So, I mean, obviously civil means Jews, but, but who's the king? Well, there's actually a king who reigns for more than 30 years at this point. King Henry. Um, no, he's, he's later. He doesn't start until 40. In the of 40. But it's his ancestors on one side who are still mm. reigning. It's the Hasmonean period still. The Hasmoneans who took over back in you know, 164, with the story of Hanukkah, actually have an autonomous kingdom all the way down until 63, 63 BC, at which point they lose it because of that civil war that Itai, Itai mentioned. But that hasn't actually started yet. And the, the king is a, is a guy named Alexander Janius or Yanai. And he rules for, uh, for a good amount of time, actually, and rules fairly strongly. You know, he has a, 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 in relative terms, you know, relative to uh, Judea and the, this area overall, he has a, a fairly large amount of territory, which he rules quite strongly. And, and Itai's point is an important one, because the Hasmoneans would have ruled much longer if they hadn't imploded. And it's, it's their fault that they lost the kingdom after 100 years. It's not that the Romans came in and swept through the region. The Romans were already the most powerful force in the region for more than a century. Judah Maccabee had, applied, had appealed to the Romans for help. That was a long time ago. But the Romans weren't interested in conquering until the Jews actually invited them in. But the point is that this is Hasmoneans. So that means that we have to think for just a couple minutes about the Hasmoneans and how they might have thought about Esther. So let's think about the Hasmoneans. What do we know about the Hasmoneans? So let's ask some key questions. Did the Hasmoneans invoke God in their war? Certainly, all the time, all the time. And the books of Maccabees are filled with like, very pious things. Right? Like, they're, they're, they're very pious people. They're extremists. They are extremists. Yeah. And how, how is that manifested? 
Alright, so for example, if you said to a follower of the Hasmoneans, eat this piece of pig or I will kill you, what would they do? Go to their death. I mean, that's, a, that's an explicit story in the second book of Maccabees. And although you know, it's hard to be sure about the historicity of any particular story in the books of Maccabees, the fact that they tell the story is the important part. Right? In other words, their stories are be willing to die rather than violate anything. We don't have any stories in the books of Maccabees about intermarriage. But you recall the, the story of, you recall that the Talmud actually asks, why was Esther not obligated to martyr herself? Right? She, she should have, shouldn't she? I mean, it's a public, a public, uh, publicly known act of sexual relationship with a non-Jew, even if sexual relationship with a non-Jew itself in private, maybe you get away with, but if it's public, no, no way around it, martyrdom is necessary. So shouldn't she have had to martyr herself? And Talmud actually invents legal categories to explain why Esther did not have to martyr herself. For the Hasmoneans, it's not clear that they would have excused her from this. They don't think that martyrdom is, I mean, it's a terrible thing, but they don't think it's necessarily an avoidable thing. That might be the price you pay for loyalty, for faith to the Jewish religion. Like, you might, you might actually die, right? So, so when we talked about you know, Esther being passive and she was taken, so some people will say, like, well, what choice does she have? And the king issues a decree. You don't have a choice. But as, as Sartre said, right, you always have a choice. You can die. That's, that's always an option. And that, that certainly would have been the Hasmonean's answer. Like, what do you mean you don't have a choice? Like, so stand there, fold your arms, and if they kill you, they kill you. But, like, that's, that's what it means to be a good Jew. The whole idea of, of Esther being intermarried obviously stands in for something that we've been talking a lot about, that the Jews seem to be fairly well integrated into Persian society. What are the Hasmoneans, you know, basic intuitions about foreign societies and things of that sort? <laughs> like, <laughs> you laugh because... They didn't like Hellenism a as a cultural good, phenomenon. A good indicator. Yeah, absolutely. And, and remember that they fought, including many deaths, to set up an independent, autonomous state. For the first time, we should emphasize, in 400 years. I mean, the Jews hadn't had it. It's not like they were taking something that Antiochus had taken away from them. The Jews hadn't been independent in, in literally 400 years, and they fought to do that. And lesser appreciated aspects of Hanukkah and Hasmoneans, beyond the retaking of a temple, they continued to fight. After they had regained religious autonomy, they said, that's not enough. We actually want political autonomy. It took them three more years, at least, to fight for that. And Judah Maccabee dies in those later battles. I mean, this, you know, they, they will fight for that political autonomy, that cultural autonomy. They're, they're not interested in compromising. All of this is to say that Esther would have struck them as almost exactly the wrong kind of Jewish story to tell your kids. Here's how to live in a broader society. So, you can marry you know, the king if you want. Better not to tell him you're Jewish. <laughs> Live with whatever compromises are necessary there. Let's not talk overly much about our religion personally. And then literarily, let's not actually talk at all about our religion, right? So no God, no miracles, no prayers, and so on and so forth. It's hard to imagine, if I asked you like a priori, like what would the Hasmoneans think about the Book of Esther? It doesn't take that much thought to realize that like, they're not going to get along. This is not going to be an easy, easy fit. So that, that seems important, because now we have a translation of the Book of Esther into Greek, made in Jerusalem under the Hasmoneans. So it's not going to be surprising to find that, yeah, all of those problems, obviously not all of them could be corrected easily in the book, because some of them are like really baked deeply into the plot of the book, but they're all addressed in this translation. Why would the Hasmoneans translate it to Greek? Oh, that's a really good question. 
there, I guess, two different parts to it, to any answer. So one is like many Greeks in Israel, and especially in Alexandria, didn't know Hebrew, and, and one, one in the Bible in Greek. So we actually don't know if this is the first translation of Esther into Greek. We just don't know. It is the only one that survives, so no particular reason to hypothesize a different one. But it is you know, 150 years, 200 years later than the translation of the Torah into Greek, for example. So the act of translating the Bible into Greek has been going on for a long time. It's not surprising that there is such an initiative. But you're certainly right. Okay, but why are the Hasmoneans doing it? And why are they sending it to Alexandria? Alexandrians, you know, if they want a translation of Esther into Greek, so this they is, could do it on Septuagint, their own. Or this is like a totally different translation? The Septuagint has like this, it's this funny thing. Like the word Septuagint means the 70, right? Which is technically a reference to that story about the 70 translators, which is technically a story only about translating the Torah, the first five books. But conventionally, people talk about the whole Greek Bible as the Septuagint which is, you know, normally fine, like it doesn't really matter, except that here I wouldn't say it, only because like we actually know something about the translation of Esther, and it's, it's really quite distinct from that big translation project. But it's a good question. I'm not going to, I have some ideas about like why they might have. Part of the question involves like, well, what do the Jews in Alexandria know about the book of Esther? Do they already know it? So we can actually prove that they do know the story, not from our text, but from other texts. And so maybe the Hasmonean Jews are like, fine, if you're going to know the story of Esther, we'll give you a better version of it. But just a guess, really. So I want to start, actually, with the other side of the page. We're not going to read this whole thing, but i just give you a taste of how the translators dealt with some of these issues. Right? So again, some of them you can't do anything about. You can't translate the book of Esther and pretend that Esther is not married to the foreign king. You have to write a whole different story if you want to avoid that plot element. But what you do have... And this is stuck in between chapters 4 and 5, and what we know as chapters 4 and 5. So at the end of chapter 4, you remember, Esther says to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews, fast for me for three days. Chapter 5, she goes into the king. What's going on in those three days? Well, we actually mentioned last week, the fasting is weird. It's sort of hanging there, right? Because what do you expect to accompany the fasting? Prayer. Prayer. But we don't get a reference to prayer. And that's obviously consistent in the book, in the Hebrew version, which doesn't talk about religion at all. But in the Greek version, we get what we expect. So we get first Mordecai's prayer, which I'm not going to read. You can read it on your own. It's sort of conventional, but it's a, you know, the fact that he prays is already the most important part. And then the next paragraph, we get Esther's prayer. Uh, I'm going to skip to verse 3. She prayed to the Lord God of Israel and said... Oh, my Lord, you only are, are our king. Help me, who am alone and have no helper but you, for my danger is in my hand. Ever since I was born, I have heard in the tribe of my family that you, O oh Lord, took Israel out of all the nations and our ancestors from among all the forebears for an everlasting inheritance, and that you did for them all that you promised. Now we've sinned before you. You've handed us over to our enemies because we glorified their God. You are righteous, O oh Lord. So this is actually amazing, because the book, the Hebrew book, has not said a word about why they're in exile. Right? It just took for granted, like, Jews are in Persia. Why? Start, so this is the flip side of what we talked about last time. Last time we talked about that there's no future to the book of Esther. There's also essentially no past to the book of Esther. It's totally fixated on the present moment. There is the reference to the fact that Mordecai's great-grandfather was exiled, which we talked about briefly. No, there's nothing about that exile. It doesn't say anything about it. And that seems to be important only for situating Mordecai as a member of a noble family. Not, uh, for example, like the book of Daniel opens by saying, you know, once upon a time, unfortunately, the king Nebuchadnezzar came and sacked Jerusalem and exiled the Jews and brought them to Babylon. This was really terrible. And now there are a lot of Jews in Babylon. And so we pick up our story with Daniel in Babylon. The book of Esther is not interested in that. 
in Interesting Mordechai, it does mention that his great-grandfather was exiled, but there's essentially no past and no future to the Book of Esther. But a good Jewish book, of course, is always situated in a historical context. And by historical context, I don't mean telling you which year of Ahasuerus' reign. I mean, why are we in exile? And conventionally, there's only one broad answer to that, which is that we sinned and we deserved it. And it's certainly not your fault, God. You are righteous. Skipping again a bit. You have knowledge of all things. You know that I hate the splendor of the wicked and abhor the bed of the uncircumcised and of any alien. So again, the translators can't get rid of the fact that she's married to the king, but they can at least apologize for it. Right? Like, this is not just taken like, oh, interesting. Apparently intermarriage is okay as long as you're going to save your people in the end. Like, no, 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 it's terrible. She despises it. You know my necessity, that I abhor the sign of my proud position, which is upon my head on days when I appear in public. What's that? The crown. The crown, right? I hate the crown. I abhor it like a filthy rag. I don't wear it on the days when I'm at leisure. Your servant has not eaten at Haman's table. I've not honored the king's feasts or drunk the wine of libations. I'm actually not sure what Haman's table means. I have no idea what that's doing here. But the, the broad point seems to be, and if we were kept asking, you know, what's she eating in the palace? So now she tells us. She has avoided anything that's forbidden at least to the extent possible. Your servant has had no joy since the day I was brought here until now, except in you, O Lord God of Abraham. O God, whose might is over all, hear the voice of the despairing, save us from the hands of evildoers, and save me from my fear. So that is essentially a way of cleaning up the problem of Esther's character here. So you can't get rid of it, but you can at least say, like, of course this is not okay. This is not something that anyone should read and just... You're going to tell your daughters the story of Esther, and they're going to be like, great, when I grow up, I want to intermarry a king too and save my people that way. You'll be like, no, that's terrible. She is racked with anxiety and guilt about this. Like, you don't want to grow up to be, to be intermarried with the king. The next line, which I didn't include here, but is, is very famous, more famous than the prayer, because it's in all sorts of artwork, is that Esther goes into the king, and what does she do? So you'll Google this. Google Esther fainting in front of the king, in front of Achashverosh or whatever, and it is a very very prominent motif in European art in the Renaissance and later. You'll find essentially all of the European masters painted the scene of Esther fainting in front of the king. So that's from the Greek version, right? <laughs> Jews typically look at that and like, that's weird. I'm like, why is she fainting? But it is in the Christian, in the, you know, in the Catholic, at that point, sorry, the Catholic version of the book. And it does, it, it is a poignant moment, if it's in a story, it is a poignant, poignant moment. So that's the beginning of chapter six which I didn't include here, but the beginning of chapter 6 that Esther goes in, and then seeing the, I don't remember the words exactly, but the glorious majesty of the king, she's overcome by his awesomeness and splendor, and she faints in front of him. So that's, that's Esther. Mordechai, we get something different going on. So I said, he also prays, so that's great, he's pious too. But more importantly, the first edition, so if you just open the Greek Bible, or, you know, a good Catholic Bible, it's not, not apologetically putting them at the end, or which goes back a long way. You know, Jerome put them at the end already, and then Luther took it out entirely. But, but a good Catholic Bible. The book of Esther actually begins as, as you have here, edition A. In the second year of the reign of Ahasuerus the Great, on the first day of Nisan, Mordechai, son of Yair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, had a dream. So, of course, first we're struck just by the fact that Mordechai is mentioned at the beginning, not, not you know, deep in chapter 2. But... As we read, he has a dream. It's not just a he has a dream. He has a dream about two great dragons that are ready to fight. They roar terribly. And the whole righteous nation was troubled. 
they were ready to perish. Now I'm in verse 10. They cried out to God, and at their outcry, as though from a tiny spring there came a great river with abundant water. Light came, the sun rose, the lowly were exalted and devoured those held in honor. Mordechai woke up, and he wanted to understand it in all detail, which he never does until the very end of the book. As the dream is, is mentioned, literally the first part of the book, and then the very last part of the book is what you have here, edition F. Mordechai says, I'm just going to paraphrase now, now I finally understand that dream. That dream, I and Haman were the two dragons. Our conflict threatened to devour the entire world, and particularly the Jews. And Esther was the little spring that became a great river and brought peace to the world, except to Haman, of course, and, and the other 75,000 people who died, but that's not the point, and solved the problem, and everyone lived happily ever after, with the exceptions that I won't mention again. So this is obviously, so what you tell me, why this? Like, the prayers, I get, it's sort of an overt display of piety, but what, what's the effect of putting this dream at the beginning and this interpretation at the end? You want to make Great. Yeah, we're wonderful. So if we were wondering, does Mordecai ever have God on his side, actually? I mean, it's Mordecai's fault, to be frank, that this whole thing happened. I mean, if he had just bowed down, we wouldn't be reading the story, but it would be a much shorter story. But, you know, the whole thing, like, I, I, we question his, his decision-making at some point. And actually, some of the medieval commentators, and the, you know, the, the line at the end of the Megillah that says that he was Ratsui l'rov echav, which, depending on how hard you press on the word rove, may imply that not all of the Jews loved Mordechai at the end of the story. Some of the medieval commentators say well, that's because it was his fault to begin with. So although it's great that everything worked out in the end, they never quite forgave him for making a mess to begin with. So that's something that we wonder. You know, we're left at the end, like, I don't know. But not in the Greek version, right? Because the Greek version, like, no, no, this is obviously all from God. The dream was there at the beginning, and when it's interpreted at the end, we're, it's left absolutely clear in our minds that this was all preordained. Mordechai's decision-making is not up in the air because God told us at the beginning, through Mordechai's dream, that this is what was going to happen. It was going to be a close call. There was going to be a threat to the, to the Jews, but in the end, it would all work out. It looks like you wanted to say something. Um, we can, what would they have said... It's all his fault because he was such a religious fanatic. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. It's hard to say because we don't know why he didn't go down. In terms of three interpretations, God was not with him at the beginning because he couldn't interpret the dream at the beginning. But in the course of it, he got God. That is a very good point. So it, so it still doesn't make him into a, a full, full-blown prophet who no. can read. Yeah. Right. But who else does this remind us of, who has dreams at the beginning that then, you know, all work out as we yeah. read the rest of the story? Joseph. This brings us back to Joseph, right? So, of course, we're not surprised to say, like, oh, it's like Joseph, because the book was already like Joseph. But if we had stopped and said, like, well, wait a second, that's all great. Like, there's all these interesting ways in which Mordecai, Esther, whatever, the story are like the story of Joseph. But there's a really big way in which it's not like Joseph. And that's that the very first thing we heard about Joseph was that he had these dreams, which were clearly divinely sent. I mean, clearly to us as readers, at least in retrospect but clearly divinely sent, in which he was going to be the king over his, or ruling over his brothers and his father. So it's true, there were all sorts of twists and turns along the way, but, but we really don't have any doubts about whether this was proper and whether it was the way it was supposed to be, because the dreams were there from the beginning. That was all not there in the book of Esther until the Greek translators put it in. So I should say, just to, you know, because I keep saying the Greek translators, it's actually not clear that the Greek translators put these things in. It is, of course, possible that the Greek translators are translating a version of Esther that already had these things in them. In other words, that this is not the translators doing two things at the same time. First of all, tampering with the book. Second of all, translating. 
or tampering through translating, it could be that someone else had already produced this other version of the Book of Esther with the dream and its interpretation, with the tefillot between chapters 4 and 5, and a couple other things. And now the translators are working very sincerely from a Hebrew text, which they're translating literally. They're just not translating a text that's familiar to us. The, the common view among, among scholars is actually that that is correct, that these are not additions made in Greek first, that they were additions made in Hebrew first. You probably heard even in the prayer that it sounds like traditional Hebrew prayers. There's no smoking gun here. Someone who's writing in Greek but who knows traditional Hebrew prayers may well capture that in their Greek as well. But it's, it's at least equally possible, if not more so, that the translation is made from a Hebrew text that already had all of these changes made to it, and that the translators are not actually to blame or credit, whatever you feel, about all these changes. All right, sorry. Yeah. So if you want to turn the original, our, our Esther, into a religious text, it kind of shows that the text already existed, and it's very easy to put a beginning and put an end and stick something in between <laughs> chapters five and six. So that I mean, right. that makes perfect sense. This right. was this was the, uh, the religious fanatics, the Hasmoneans, who wanted to Judaize the the text that they had. Right. But yeah, I think it's, it's certainly possible. What do you say? But then why wasn't that counted? Because yeah, OK, already, good. So that's a really hard question. It's actually a hard question. Because they already had it. And it was already popular. And this is very, so this is actually a hard question. I mean, it, it's, it's hard. I don't mean this in like some sort of conceptual way. Like, you know, I have to think really hard about this. Like, it's hard because we basically know nothing about the canonization process of Esther or most other books. So it's hard to know. Well, we do know one thing, right, which is that Esther is the only book that wasn't found among the Qumran discoveries. True. So when you add that together with the assumption that there was a Hebrew, an original Hebrew version to the Greek, yeah. then it amplifies the question of why it wasn't canonized. Hmm. Yeah, so, no, this is good. This is good. So it really is, you know, it's fundamentally unknown. So, so certainly it's possible. Like, if yeah. the rabbis didn't like the Hasmoneans, right? They, they talk them down. Well, in this, in this case, in this sense, you know, in the, in the sense that we're talking about, they're totally on the Hasmonean side, as are 99% of all other Jews in history. Most Jews actually reread Esther to make it more conventional. I mean, that's, that's the way it's, and we'll, we'll talk about that more explicitly in a minute. But in terms of the canonization, it is hard to know. So if it's true, if, if, if we could know, if it's true, and if we knew that, uh, that Esther had already been in some sense canonized, and it's hard to say exactly what that would mean, but in some sense canonized before this time, you know, let's say before the Hasmoneans, which is a, a view that some scholars have argued about the entire Bible, then obviously all we have to say is that these changes came in too late. The book of Esther was already... You know, canonized. And again, I, I'm not entirely sure what I mean by saying that, but let's, I'll just keep saying it. Well, it was certainly popularized. That, that doesn't mean the same thing as canonized. Right? There was lots, lots of books that were popular in Second Temple times that are not in the canon as we know it. They might have been in some people's canon, but not, but not you know, someone decided they weren't in the canon. So that would obviously be, it would, if we knew that much, then we could at least address this question. Be like, oh, apparently this was in, it was not in that canon, or it wasn't this canon, and therefore, you know, even though someone later had this brilliant idea of, of making it to a more religious or conventional book, it was too late. You know, the, the book was already published in official Library of Congress edition, with like a stamp on the front, and, and you just couldn't undo it, and like that was it. You know, it was in every, every home already. We don't know that for a fact. I mean, we, we actually don't know that at all. So if that's not the case, and it's actually canonized later, 
then it's an open question. Like, well, there's another version floating around, like this really nice version that doesn't challenge all of our assumptions about what it means to be a Jew. So why not go with that one? And, you know, it's hard to prove. There is a... Ah, it doesn't matter. Okay, so I won't, I won't worry about the, the evidence for the canonization right now. But I will say that to go back to, to the Hasmoneans, so although 99% of Jews from, you know, the second century on to today, I think would, would be happy with the Hasmoneans in this particular issue. Herod would not. Herod is certainly on Esther's side. And it's possible to at least contemplate Herod's time as an era in which the original book of Esther would have found a popular audience among, uh, obviously Herod's not responsible for the Hebrew Bible. I mean, that's, that seems bizarre. But influential people in his court, in his circles, we do know that the Pharisees were powerful in his time. You, there's not any real data here, but you can connect dots in a creative enough way that would at least allow that as a hypothesis. Um, in other words, in his time, a book where like, hey, playing ball with a foreign power and whatever that may mean, compromising on any religious principles. I mean, Herod's all about that. So, you know, he, he might have actually liked it. Again, I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about him as a person so much because I have no particular reason to think that he cared about the Book of Esther or anything else. And he was patronizing, you know, he built the Temple Mount, but he also built Caesarea and, you know, temples to other gods. So he's, he's not the one who I would credit with the canon in like a normal sense. But his time might have been amenable to such a decision. But I don't know. It's, hard, it's very hard to be. Well, I, I guess I was tentative enough in saying that that I'll, I think that's appropriate. I'll leave it at that. Do you, do you think there's an aesthetic choice here being made? In the sense that like, when you continuously distract from the narrative by talking about prayer, you kind of ruin it for the story? That's interesting. Because the story kind of is very quick. When you just read yeah. Esther, it's, like, it's a very fast-paced sort of story with no real, almost no internal, there's a few, there's one moment of internal dialogue about how, like, no, that's a great point. like, very little, actually. Right. That's a funny example, actually, but, right, that is a really good point, because it's true. The, the Greek version is actually a worse story. I mean, that's, that is absolutely true, and I mean that in, in, like, literal sense. I mean, one of the ways, you could ask, for example, like, well, how do you know these are additions? Maybe that's the original version, and someone took out all of these things. So you can ask, you know, is it plausible that someone, like, systematically take out God? Like, which is an open question, I suppose. But more importantly, in the Greek version, Mordecai is introduced twice. The person who added addition A neglected to take out the introduction of Mordecai in chapter 2. So that's, that's you know, poor editing, but it also means that, like, it's actually not as good a book. The dream, actually, as you probably discern, like, doesn't actually match all that tightly with this narrative. Like, it's not, it's not a very tight parallel, right? So there's all sorts of ways in which I think I, I would agree with your aesthetic judgment. Like, the Hebrew version is actually, like, really tight. Uh, until you get to the end. The last, like, chapter is weird. But, but, uh, but at least one through eight. <laughs> like, really a, a tightly scripted narrative. There's, you know, basically no extraneous details. Everything, everything really comes together. Well, you do, the, the end is necessary for the broad structure of the book. So you can't excise it. But the narrative techniques have really changed at that point. But, but you're right. I mean, I think, I think aesthetically you're right. I guess then the question is like, okay, so again, I don't know anything about the canonizers, so I, I have no way of actually asking this question. But, you know, would they privilege aesthetics over religiosity or ideology or however you would formulate that? And that's a hard question. I mean, you know, it seems like when you're formulating a biblical canon, like ideology seems like most important, but maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I guess if aesthetics were, were the key, I have other books that I want to ask some about. <laughs> but, but I don't know. It's, a, it's certainly a good point. All right. 
So what we're, we're going to turn to now is, we're not going to have a chance to read all of this, but I'm going to give you a sampling of some of the ways in which rabbinic literature does read the Book of Esther. I'll say reread. That's what it says. I, I didn't say that at the top here, because reread, I think, is, sounds at least like it's a conscious move, right? Like, I know what it says, but I'm going to reread that in a different way. The rabbis of the, of the Midrash and the Talmud, like most Jews today, I think, and, in, and all the intervening centuries, are not consciously rereading. They're sincerely reading it in a particular way, and that, of course, depends on your assumptions when you start. Like, how you read the text will depend on what you assume. And clearly, this quote from Halbertal, which I actually think is a little bit misleading, but it, you know, he formulates it as he formulates most things very well. Halbertal writes, when a book was introduced into the body of scripture, he's actually not talking about Esther, he's talking about Song of Songs, it was required to give up its unique and heretical message. The moment it became part of the scriptural canon, the exegete was obligated to make it consistent with the rest of the scriptures. The new reading means that the original meaning will be lost. So what I think is a little bit misleading about this is that that's actually probably the prerequisite for a book becoming part of scriptures. In other words, it's very unlikely, actually, that Song of Songs was incorporated as part of the Tanakh as secular love poetry, and then exegetes were like, well, it's part of the Bible, I've got to read it as a religious text. Probably almost inevitably, it seems to me. Like, first it's read as a religious text, and then people say, like, well, then it should be part of the Bible. And the same thing is presumably true with Esther. It's not only because you find it in the, in the Bible that you read it as a biblical book. Again, it's probably incorporated into the Bible only because people read it as a plausibly religious book. So, so it's hard to say, you know, how early certain readings emerge, and I'm not going to worry about it. What we have is rabbinic literature, and, and rabbinic literature actually basically systematically goes through the book of Esther and addresses all of the troubling, problematic aspects of it that, I guess I should say, like, which I didn't portray as troubling or problematic, but I did portray as surprising, but for, for many readers are in fact troubling or, or problematic. It, it, it violates expectations in all sorts of ways, and those have to be dealt with in, in some way. So the most obvious way is the lack of God, which we already saw at the beginning of today, that there are some Midrashim that say, like, well, God's there. God's, God's sleepless. God's keeping the king awake. God, God's simply there. And that's, that's fine. That's important to say. So God is not actually absent. God is there. But God is absent, right? I mean, the rabbis can't deny the fact that God doesn't overtly show up in the story. And no matter how many times we claim that he is implicitly there, and then we read between the lines and, and put him into the story, there's still a question of, but why isn't he actually in the story? Like, why is there no... God showed up and threw lightning bolts at the Persians and like that solved the problem or, or killed, I don't know, do something. Like, why, why is the story so, so apparently secular? So this is what I, what I take to be the question of that first source, and then says number one. The Talmud in Chulin says, Esther Torah minayin. Where does the Torah foretell the story of Esther? Which is an interesting question, right? Like the Torah, when it was the first five books, where does it ever foreshadow that there would be a story of the book of Esther? Now, of course, you could say, like, why does that have to foreshadow that there be a book of Esther? Like, that, you don't have to do that. But I think the stakes will become clear in a second. The answer that the Talmud gives is, Vanochi haster astir panai bayomahu. So the quote from the very end, Deuteronomy 31, God says, Moses says, in the name of God, I will hide my face, I will indeed hide my face on that day. So at one level, this is a pun. Haster astir, ester. Where is Esther hinted at in the Torah? In the phrase, haster astir. That's cute. But this is not actually cute, right? Because what are they really saying? 
they're addressing the issue of where God is in the book. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. In other words, the real and question is... Why is this in the canon? Right. right. Or, or I would put it a little differently. I mean, same basic idea, but why, I put it a little differently. Why, given the Torah, why would we ever think that there's room in biblical thought for a story that doesn't actually talk about God? This doesn't seem like a legitimate biblical story. That's the question. The question is not like, where does the Torah hint at the story? There's all sorts of stories the Torah never hints at. No one ever asks, like, Remez le Yonam in a Torah minai. Like, who cares? Right? Because Yonah's fine. But the question is, but why do we think that this story can exist? This story is not allowed, it seems to be not allowed, unless you can show me that it's been licensed in some way by the Torah itself. Partly because it's the human condition. That's how things look to us. That's what you said. Sometimes. That's what you said. Sometimes. Sometimes that you can see hints of God in there if you try it. Okay. So, so the, the Tom was asking is, like, fine, but like this sort of story, that like, don't invoke God at all. Like, why would I think I'm allowed to tell such stories and claim that they are Jewish religious stories? Doesn't seem like it's okay. And then, of course, what they, it's actually really brilliant, right? Because it is a pun. Hester Esther is, in fact, a really good play on the name of Esther. But it's also like exactly the point that they want to make, right? Like you literally couldn't have planted this verse any better. That in the same verse where there's a there are two words that sound a lot like Esther's name, is also the verse where it theologically says there may one day be a time where I've hidden my face from you, yeah. which of course then brings us back and say like that's so good, maybe that's why she's called Esther. It's true that Esther is a plausibly Persian name and so on and so forth. But that really is good. I mean, <laughs> so it's hard to know, obviously. But I just want to emphasize that this is a really good play on words, but it's much more profound than that. I mean, the, the Talmud is actually saying, like, this is, this is where we get scriptural license for a story without an overt mention of God. What do you mean by scriptural license? In other words, it's almost anachronistic. I mean, this whole story happened later. Of course so it's why, anachronistic. So why do you look for a reference because if you didn't have... Other than, you know, some hint. Right, so if you didn't, I mean, what the, what the Gemara seems to be saying is, if, if the Torah had never said that there would be such a day, a whole story, where God's face is hidden, then you would be illegitimate in claiming that you can tell a story, a good Jewish story, without invoking God. If you did that, I would say, like, no, I'm sorry. That's nice that you have seen this this way, but you're misperceiving history. You're not seeing it correctly. And anyway, your story is certainly not going into my Bible. But what the Talmud says is like, oh, but there actually is license for it. The Torah itself actually foretells that there'll be a day where God's face is hidden. Where is that fulfilled? Now I have a story where it's fulfilled. So it's Esther is actually a fulfillment of something that the Torah foretold. But that whole concept of Esther Fund is fulfilled in numerous places. Or is no other book that we have is God not overtly present? So that's the story. That's the question, right? Like, how is this book okay? okay? Like, this book is not okay until we show that it is okay. Now, interestingly, the Gemara, now this is elsewhere. This is, this is actually in, in Megillah, although I seem to have forgotten to write down to include exactly the reference. I think in Megillah, Tav Zayin and Aleph. But the Gemara says that a number of, of rabbis taught the following, that Esther sent to the sages, Shalchala Esther l'chachamim, Kitvuni l'dorot, literally write me down for generations. And they wrote back to her, we can't, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We checked, and we checked 
our already existing scriptures to see whether there's room for you. And your story cannot be included. So this is sort of an imagined canonization process, right? Like where Esther actually asks to be canonized, not in the Catholic sense, but asks to be canonized in the Bible. You can't do that in the Catholic sense either, right? <laughs> so she asks to be canonized. Like, I wrote this really great book. It's a really important story. I am the star of the story. I would like this book to be in the Bible. And the sages say to her, we can't. So they check, they check. What do they find? They, they find a verse in Mishlei. So, I mean, Alfred, you're, you're in trouble. Like, this whole thing is anachronistic. That's fine. That's the way the rabbis read it, right? Like, the whole scripture is, like, on one, like, laid out in front of me, right? So I can pick from here and there and there, and I'm telling one story. So the, the verse in Mishlei says, Hello, katavti lacha shalishim, which is a, a hard pasuk that we don't have to worry about right now. Shalishim velo ribeim. I'm only allowed to write the story three times, not four times. What? What are they talking about? So here's what you'll see in a second. But then they searched more and they found that, no, no, there is actually room. It says, So Exodus 17, write this. That's what's written here and in Deuteronomy. Remembrance, what's written in the prophets. And the book, what's written in the writings. It was here in Megillah. So to make any sense of this, you have to recall where this verse comes from. Exodus 17. And the Talmud is like so elusive and dead. Elusive, right? I mean, they just assume that like, not only do you have all scripture laid out in front of you, but like when I quote a verse, it'll obviously be clear to you like what I'm doing with this verse. So where does that come from? Ketov Zotzi Karun Sefer? Or what's the story in Exodus 17? It's the story of the war against Amalek. The battle against Amalek. At the very end of the battle against Amalek, write this down, right? God says, write this down, because it's going to be an everlasting conflict. So, so, Zahor is the one in Deuteronomy. Right, exactly. exactly. So, so and then it, when it says, write this, Ketov Zot, what is written here, in other words, in Exodus, where we are, and in Deuteronomy, so Deuteronomy is where this is recalled, as we have this Shabbat, right? Remembrance. So now, so clear, now it's clear, right? We're talking about Stories between where the Jews clash with Amalek. So where do we have that? Well, we have that first in the Torah, here, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. That's Ketov Zot, write this. Then in the prophets, where do the Jews clash with Amalek and the prophets? Saul. Saul, exactly, right? Saul, who wiped them out, apparently, except for Agag, who is really important, if that's what Agagi means. And then Basefer, and then it has to be in the book, but we don't have another instance of a war against Amalek in the Bible yet. So it's blank. So there's room for Esther. Here's where it all comes, right? So the, the sages can now say to Esther, you want it to be in the Bible, we didn't know how to fit you in, but now we find out that there is, in fact, a space for you. That space is that we have one last slot for a war between the Jews and Amalek. It's actually amazing, again, on, on multiple levels, right? So first of all, I need license, right? I need the Bible itself to tell me that there is room for such a story. Second of all, now I can say, like, oh, now I understand what role in the Bible this story is playing. So this is not about God, right? This is not a problem with God. I don't know why they hesitated first, but it doesn't say that that's the reason. That this is no room for you. But now there is room, because this is actually not just a story that's licensed, like, oh, one day there'll be such a story, but it's actually part of an unfolding story. Right? A big unfolding story that goes back literally to the beginnings of the nations of Israel. Like literally before they ever got the Torah, right? Next to 17, they were already at war with Amalek. 
and we were told this is going to be a war that goes on from generation to generation. And it almost ended with Saul, except that he didn't do it. So it continues. Yeah. And where does it finally end? Yeah. Esther. Esther. Right? This is it. This, now it's finally end. We never hear about Amalek from now on. I don't know whether the shot is that Haman is an agagi, meaning Amalek or not. I don't, I don't care right now. But the rabbis were obviously reading it. It's like, this is the last instantiation of this big fight, right? This fight, this is not just like an interesting story that happened to the Jews in the Persian period. This is something that is literally the climax of a war that's been going on for like 900 years between the Jews and Amalek that no one else was able to bring to completion until Esther and Mordechai tracked down Haman, not on purpose, but they did it, and they completed this eradication of Amalek. Now we're done, and now come full circle, like now the Bible can actually end, right? Because back in Exodus it had said this war is going to go on from generation to generation until it's finally, finally brought to an end. The whole passage in Talmud is actually a little bit more interesting. Then there's another view of like how exactly to read this. Maybe there's actually room for four, and then the Deuteronomy is its own reference. It's interesting, but it's, it just makes it a little bit more complicated. Where is this in the Bible? Megillah, I think 7a, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. But, but again, I mean, the key point is that what they've managed to do here is operate on a couple of levels. First of all, they've said the earlier biblical books licensed this. Like, there's actually room for it. I needed there to be licensed, and there is room. There's a, there's a blank slot here. I hadn't realized it, but it's, it's there. And second of all, it's not just that there's a blank slot, but that blank slot is actually part of a big story. Right? So you can no longer say that Esther is like hanging off by its own, like it's so different from all the other books in so many different ways. No, it's actually just the completion of a story that's been going on for a long time. It's really quite amazing. I'll just add one point to this Amalek aspect, and then I'm going to just look at two quick texts to end. The war against Amalek, I mean, certainly in Talmud, and this is codified as is everything else by Maimonides, but Talmud assumes that the war against Amalek is not actually incumbent upon the Jews before they enter the land of Israel. But when they enter the land of Israel, now that you have your own autonomous polity, now go conduct this war against Amalek. And that's presumably why, in the rabbinic reading, Shaul is the one who does this first, because he's the first king. So now we finally have a polity that can get together and actually do this. So this is sort of a legalistic way of reading the history, right? So, so they weren't obligated to go after Amalek until Saul arose as a king. Now that he did, they go after Amalek. He doesn't finish the job, though. And I want to emphasize the land of Israel aspect, because one issue that we've talked about is that Esther is, has essentially no interest in the land of Israel. I mean, just not, not interested in it, far away from it geographically, and no mention of it, except again for that reference to Mordecai's great-grandfather, no mention to it of it literarily, right? The fact that there are all sorts of Jews living in Jerusalem and worshiping in the temple is like not part of the story. So once this is incorporated into the story of Amalek, though, something really remarkable has happened. Because now there was this commandment, go to the land of Israel, set up your own country, and eradicate Amalek. They failed to do that, right? Saul in particular, but they failed to do that. Now Amalek is all over the place. So how are the Jews ever going to be able to finish the war against Amalek? In the diaspora. Only by being in the diaspora. <laughs> but of course, now the result of this is, now, now that they've done this, it's like now you can go back, right? I mean, this is now... Now you've done it. You've gotten rid of all the enemies in the diaspora. Like that was a prerequisite for like being safe in your own pe- in your own land. Now, so incorporating into the story of Amalek, not just incorporates into the story, but also incorporates the whole issue of like, well, why are they in Persia and like what are they doing there? They're like, oh, we actually have an implicit answer to that. They needed to be there because Amalek is there, and since they missed the chance of eradicating Amalek in their own territory, they had to track them down at the ends of the earth. 
The 75,000 people who are in 127 provinces. So they've eradicated Amalek from Sudan all the way to Pakistan. And now, nothing's standing in their way of actually being, again, independent in their, in their homeland. Nothing's standing in the way from being safe in diaspora, too, now that... That's also true. That is also true, right? Also, also expanded the recognition of God uh, outside of Paris. Right? Hmm. Oh. Right. That is true. That is a very good point. So Daniel says, you know, there's value to being in the diaspora. I can even make the king recognize our religion. Obviously, in Esther, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but yes, no, that's a very good point. What makes you think that we've obliterated Haman through Esther? Well, Haman or Amalek? I mean, Haman's obvious, right? I mean, Haman, yes. Right, Haman and his ten kids. Amalek, right. right? Because, I mean, there are all these theories, you know, that Amalek is ever present. Not, you know, or... In some sort of, like, spiritual way right. or something. Yeah. So in the book of Esther, though, it's not just Haman and his ten sons who have died. Who else has died? Yeah, and, and they're not randomly chosen people. No, they're the enemies of the Jews. Yeah. Anyone who picked up a sword against the Jews was killed. Right? So anyone who wanted to kill the Jews is now dead. So it's good to your point, right? So in theory, and this is obviously, you know, I don't want to claim this yeah. as a matter of fact, but, but in theory, within the story, there are no more Sone Israel left in the Persian Empire. Because right? people who actually wanted to fight against the Jews tried to, and died, and that's it. That's how do you oh, no more, no more enemies. How Persians felt about those 75,000 people getting killed? I don't know. Not very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not sure. So, one very quick text, at the, the no, one that's labeled number four here. This is from a Midrash. And there are, I should just say, I'm not going to say much about these midrashim, but there are more midrashim, more midrashic, midrashic collections, quantitatively more midrashim, more rabbinic literature, on the book of Esther than there are in any other biblical book except for Genesis. The rabbis interpret Genesis a lot. And they interpret, then we have midrashim. We don't have systematic midrashim on most of the Bible. right? We do have on the rest of the Torah, although many of those collections at least are late in their current form, but, but we do have them. So we have a Midrash Rabbah on Exodus, but we also have a Lachic Midrash and Mechota and other, whatever, the rest of the Torah. We do not have systematic Midrashim on the prophets. There is no, like, Shoftim Rabbah or something like that. There's obviously a lot of isolated comments, but there's no collection of Midrash, midrash on all the prophets. We do have on the five Megillot. That's the other books that have systematic Midrashim. But Esther, of the five Megillot, actually gets way more attention than any of the other Megillot. And it's even in the Bavli. So this, this was on Daf Zayin, but starting on Daf Yud Amur Bet, and the first parak of Megillah, if you ever learned the first parak of Megillah, suddenly in the, beginning, the middle of the first parak of Megillah, which is like a normal Talmud, you know, that was all sorts of, like the genre of Talmud, which is not a genre, but whatever it is. And then in some manuscripts, it actually says in the middle of Daf Yud, end of the first chapter, which is not the end of the first chapter. And then there is a midrash on the book of Esther. It just goes verse by verse and comments on the book of Esther, which is something unparalleled in the Babylonian Talmud. In other words, the Talmud, the Bavli, only here actually incorporates a whole midrashic collection into, into the Talmud itself. So we have a huge amount of midrash on Esther. So this is really just sort of a very, very selective sampling of the very many comments. And obviously much of them is, much of the comments are not directly relevant to the issues that we've been discussing, but there are plenty more where these come from. So number four, 
This is sort of a heavy-handed way of making the book religious. Rabbi Yudan, Rabbi Levi, Amru, Mishmed, Rabbi Yochanan. So they both quote their teacher, Rabbi Yochanan, who is the great Eretz Yisrael Amura in the early 3rd century. Every time it says, Melech HaChashverosh in Megillah Esther, it means the king HaChashverosh, because it says so. But every time it says, the king, without saying his name, it doesn't mean Achashverosh. The Melech Machayam Lachim Akatub Medaber. It means the king of kings of kings. Which is a funny phrase, king of kings of kings. Although we should note that the Persian kings call themselves the king of kings. So this is the one-upping them. This is the king of kings of kings. But that is, that is heavy-handed on the one hand, right? So it's not subtle. It's not like, like the earlier passages we just looked at are like very, very subtly putting Esther into a biblical context. Mm. This is not subtle. <laughs> this is, no. God is actually there dozens of times. Every time it says the king, it means God. So a, as an exercise over Purim, see what happens when you do that. You'll see that there are cases where it doesn't make so much sense, but other cases where it's like, that would actually be a really interesting way of understanding what's going on here if this meant God rather than King uh, Ahasuerus. So, all right, last point and a half. Number eight, the rabbis ask, and they ask us in a number, of, a number of places, what do the Jews do to deserve destruction? It's not an obviously good question. I mean, most readers actually don't ask that question. Most people read the Book of Esther and don't say, like, why were they actually so close to being massacred? This seems like that's the rabbi's question. It's like, if they were so close to being massacred, they must have done something wrong. I mean, the way, like the same the way that Esther prayed and said, it's our fault, right? Why are we in exile? It must be our fault. The rabbis say, even if you don't actually get massacred, if you're almost massacred, don't take that lightly. I mean, God is obviously almost massacring you for some purpose, some reason, I should say. So why? What did they do wrong? So there's actually a number of answers that are given in rabbinic literature. But the one that I quote here, which is quoted in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, is, They enjoyed the feast of that wicked man. What feast did they enjoy? Okay. And what feast is that? Yeah, exactly. That is also said, but right, the feast in chapter one. Right, chapter one, he throws a big banquet. So one of them, at least, is for all the people of Shushan Abira, all the people of Eir Shushan, I'm sorry, all the people of the city of Shushan, and everyone comes. And as we observed, it doesn't say anything about the Jews in that chapter. And by not saying anything about the Jews, it seems to imply that the Jews were like every other Persian in Shushan. And they were at the banquet. Not like Daniel, where he says, can't eat your food. They eat the food. Mishim Bar-Yuchai says, alarms go off. There's a banquet. He invites everyone. Everyone comes and eats the food. Big problem. That means the Jews are not doing what they should do. And again, Daniel's a really good comparison here, because chapter 1 of Esther is about food, but the Jews implicitly, according to Mishim Bar-Yuchai, partake in. Chapter 1 of Daniel is the royal food that Daniel explicitly will not partake in. He says, I will not eat this food. I will only eat seeds, drink water. I will not drink the wine, and I will not eat the, eat the food prepared in the, in the palace kitchens. What's really powerful about what Rishim Bar Yochai says, it, that suggestion is, that actually then explains the entire different trajectory of the book of Daniel versus the book of Esther. Right? It's by saying that, like, let's just follow that through. So in the book of Daniel, Daniel folds his arm and won't eat the food. And then... What happens to Daniel? How does God treat Daniel? Well, they become ruler over everybody. Yeah, I mean, not the king, but... 
Right. He just keeps getting more and more successful. And when he needs help, when he's like almost killed, for example, because he insists on praying in public, so he's thrown into a lion's den. So what, is, what does God do? Saves him. Sends angels. Saves him, right? In other words, saves angels when his friends, Hanani, Mishael, and Azari, are tossed into a fiery furnace because they won't bow down to an idol. So what does God do? <laughs> yeah, another angel. And there's overt miracles in the book of Daniel. God steps in and saves people. What this, this claim allows is to say, like, well, that, that happens in Daniel because from the first chapter in Daniel, Daniel acted properly. You're a Jew in exile, and you're challenged by saying, like, well, there's food here. What are you going to do? Are you going to partake or not partake? Daniel says, not partake. Great. God says, fantastic. You're a good Jew. And now when you need help, I will help you. Then I open Esther and says, there's food here. What do you do? And they're like, food. Great. <laughs> we eat the food. And God says, fine. You know what? I'm not helping you. But is it also that, is that but like Mordechai is specifically, it's not, it's not that his issue is not bowing down to idols, right? Like we were talking about this before, right. where like, like almost everything is off from, from Daniel in that sense. We're like, right. That's true. That's interesting. So he won't bow down, but it has nothing to do with yeah, idolatry, like, apparently. Like, but like, praying in public is similar to that, but like, you don't have... Like, it's, it's like there's something slightly off in the Book of Esther consistently with, with how the Jews are reacting to the punishment. Hmm. What do you mean by off? Like, oh. if you're saying right, they eat the food, they're tested with the food, they eat the food. Mordecai chooses his battles, but it's not clear that he's choosing his battles wisely. Right. For in a way that's really making a statement. I mean, you could argue that either way. And then, again, with the with the way that Esther handles being married to Ahasuerus, and from like a Hasmonean or mm-hmm. more extreme perspective, and then also with right when they delay the state, or they they fast, or all the different aspects where you're basically going against. Mm-hmm. It's not there's, it's not like you're following halacha per se. Right. There's some other code that you're following. Jewish. Right. right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, yeah, that's a great point. So I don't know what the code would be, but I think you're certainly right to highlight that in all of these examples, it, you know, these, are the, these are the problems that the rabbis, among other readers, are faced with. They're like, this whole book is like not working well as a good Jewish book. So you can go locally and say like, oh, so here's how we solve this problem. It must have been this, it must have been that. Or you can try some sort of like global approach. It's like, oh, the whole book thinks of things differently. Yeah, so that, I mean, just because of the time, I'm not going to pursue it. But I think, I think you're, you're formulating that very well. So I would just summarize this point by saying that this sort of implicitly puts it back in dialogue with Daniel, but takes Daniel as a really good foil for the book of Esther. It says, like, when you read Daniel alongside Esther, you realize why God's not involved. Right? So that's actually a really powerful thing to be able to say. And it's not a literary question, like we saw in the first source, like, how could you write a story without God? Because like, why did God not do something? His people are about to be destroyed, and he's sort of hoping that things work out okay. That doesn't seem like the God we know. Send an angel, right? We send angels all the time. And the answer here is, ah, they don't deserve it, right? They, had they been better back in chapter 1, they would, in fact, presumably have had the same treatment as Daniel, and God would have sent an angel. You know, all he has to do is send one angel, trip Haman on his way to see the king that day, and he breaks his knee and goes to the hospital and never has that conversation. That's it. The whole thing never happens. But instead, God stays out of it because the people don't deserve his intervention. All right. And at the end of this all, and this is sort of amazing, and we'll leave it with this. At the end of it, at the end of it all, we have this 
kind of a remarkable, uh, remarkable claim. This is in uh, Yerushalmi, in the Talmud of Eretz Yisrael, in the first chapter of Megillah. A series of statements that are actually amazing. So Rav and Rabbi Chanina, Rabbi Yonatan and Bar Kapara, and Rabbi Shurab and Levi. So five prominent third, third century Amoraim all said, this scroll, the Megillah, Megillah Azot, was said to Moshe at Sinai, Nemral Moshe Misinai, Ela she'en mukdamu mulchar batorah. <laughs> so Nachum's not going to like this. <laughs> it's not anachronistic. Actually, this was given to Moses. Just is written later because things are out of chronological order. Rabbi Yochanan says, the Nevi'im and Ketuvim, Atidin Libatel, Joshua through the end of the Bible, will no longer be relevant in the Messianic age and will apparently be de- decanonized or whatever that means. But Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, not all of them, Megillat Esther and the laws Megillat Esther is actually going to be applicable, canonized, sacred forever, even into the Messianic. So this is actually remarkable, because the shot of Esther, and the way, the way Esther actually portrays, the way I read Esther in its historical context, Esther is the first book to go after the Messianic age. What do I need a book about that I asked for a life in the Messianic age? Like, this is, like, I can get rid of this first, and then we can talk about like, whether I need the book of Judges and Joshua and things like that. Or Isaiah, I don't know. But Rabbi Shimon Lakish says, no, no, actually, if you read Esther properly, this is the most timeless of all books. Right? This is a book that's actually most profound. And that's sort of the, the mirror image of the first claim, which is that it also didn't need to wait until the Persian period to be written. So it could be from the time of Moshe, and it's going to be eternally valid. And this is just the most important book that essentially was ever written, not by God. So this is, this is a pretty remarkable series of claims. But it takes, the, it takes the book of Esther totally out of its context and actually claims that it's, it's transcendent. I mean, literally, right? It transcends all times and contexts. It is significant beyond anything you might have imagined. So for right now, I'll, I'll just say that like, that, could only, that could only have been the last source on our sheet. Only after you reread this book as saying all sorts of like profound things about God and Israel and the unity of scripture and the unity of Jewish history and seeing Esther as part of this big narrative and maybe even the culmination of this big narrative, then you can say something like, oh, this book, this is, this is just the most important book. I mean, it'll be important forevermore. Had we started with that, it would have been totally bizarre because like this book is, is the most problematic of all books, certainly not the one that needs to last forever. But the rabbi's reading of the book is, it actually takes it totally out of its context and really makes it into a timeless book. Now, I want to emphasize something. The, the Jewish experience of Esther is entirely this, not what we talked about for the first two weeks. Right? The first two weeks is, is, a question, is like the broad question of, of pshat and drash. Right? So pshat meaning like the best we can do at approximating what the text meant in its original context, how the first readers may have understood it. And Drash is, is taking it out of that context in all sorts of possible, possible ways. So those are sometimes, depending on the context, loaded terms. And sometimes, well, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, but in our context, I would say they are, they are loaded terms, but it's the Drash that's far more important. Because right? if, we, if we insist on the Pshat, we may in fact uncover the way Jews understood the text for the first couple of centuries. And I would think that it's also a possible reading today that might be particularly resonant as diaspora Jews trying to figure out what it means to live as a you know, loyal, in some sense Jew, loyal, in some sense cosmopolitan. Like, these are tough questions. And seeing how biblical texts grapple with this is at least worthwhile, even if it's not you know, 
naively going to give us answers. But the, the, the struggle is at least something that's familiar. But the drash is actually what has animated Jewish experience of Purim for the last at least 2,000 years, if not more than that. I mean, people don't read the book of Esther and think of it as a radical book that challenges everything we know about biblical thinking, Jewish life and diaspora, and so on. On the contrary, it's read in light of Daniel, read in light of Ezra and Nehemiah, and so on. And that's already in full force in rabbinic literature, which does read it consciously as part of this big discussion, and not part meaning like a foil to, but part meaning like, yeah, part of this uh, big narrative of the Bible. Uh, someone mentioned, I can't remember who mentioned, who was, that there is a midrash that Esther's son is, is Cyrus. So there's a midrash that Esther's son is Cyrus, also in the, the Bible of Megillah, which is the perfect way to end this, right? Because, so this is midrashic, but, but think about what that means then it means that Esther is not setting up this sort of like alternative reality as you were just talking about, where like, oh, I don't know, for some reason off in Persia they're doing like weird stuff and like they seem to have a different conception of what it means to be Jewish. It's like, no, 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 that was temporarily true, but literally her son said, now you can go back and build the temple and go back to like normal Judaism, which is obviously centered in the land of Israel, obviously centered around the temple in Jerusalem, obviously not diffuse geographically or aberrant, you know, religiously, but go back to conventional, like, biblical religion as we know it should now be picked up again, right? So there is a sort of temporary hiatus with the, with the exile, but of course there's a temporary hiatus with the exile. That's, that we know. If you incorporate Esther into that story, which, again, shot-wise doesn't work, but if you do that, you're like, okay, so that's just part of this sort of aberrant, unfortunate reality that lasted, you know, a couple of generations, and then actually paves the way for the return and enables Jews to go back to living conventional Jewish lives. So that's a really remarkable act of reading that the rabbis do. And again, there's, there's background to that about the chronology that, that we haven't talked about. The rabbis give us what we've inherited from like now, you know, a couple of millennia of Jewish readings of Esther is actually a book that is challenging in all sorts of interesting ways, but doesn't remain as a lone voice in the Bible, like saying, like, here's a different vision of what it might mean to live as a diaspora Jew. It's actually part of a big story, and it's been incorporated narratively, right? Like, it's part of the story of Amalek. It's paving the way for the return to, to Jerusalem, and religiously. So, you know, why is God not here? Well, because they sinned. But had they not sinned, of course God would show up, right? This is not, this is not some different vision. God's not there precisely because it is a diaspora book. No, that's so an so alternative, but that's not what the rabbi said. I agree with you. I agree with you. That's how, that's how I think that's what the, the author of the book would say. But what the, what the rabbi's given us is a book where God is not there, and we deal with that, but we deal with that in theologically safe ways, right? So it's Hester Panim. This is what it said in Deuteronomy already. This is not something new. This is not, like, shocking us. It's Hester Panim. God hid his face. It said so. And why did he hide his face? Because they sinned, not because of you know, some strange development in theology where, whereby God has withdrawn from the world and for reasons that are mysterious and deeply troubling. No, look, if you don't sin, you'd be like Daniel, then even the diaspora God will show up. If you sin, then like, what are you surprised about? Like, don't, don't bother me that God's not here. So look, the, the key thing is the, the experience of Purim is actually complicated, right? I mean, this is the, studying the, the shot of, of Esther doesn't make Purim easier. Because <laughs> now you have to deal with, like, well, okay, so now how do I experience this? And the Jewish experience of Purim has mostly been dominated by the Midrashic approach, not by the shot approach. And that's important. I mean, that, that has to be, right? Because if we insist on taking things in their historical context, 
we, we may or may not be more accurate intellectually, but we're certainly not going to be more religiously inspired. And that's, that's something that I, I wouldn't say the rabbis were consciously trying to give us inspiration. They sincerely were reading it differently because it was inconceivable to them that it was anything other than what they, what they say. But I'll, I'll just wish you luck in navigating Purim <laughs> and balancing all of these different things as you experience it. <laughs>